0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, We are in John chapter 8, and as we get to that text this morning, I want to ask just a real quick, simple, general question. Um, Have you ever been in church, and uh, the sermon is going on, and uh, the pastor is reading a text and preaching on it, and in the back of your mind, or maybe in the forefront of your mind, you're thinking to yourself, oh, if only so-and-so was here to hear this message, this is exactly the sermon they need to hear because they're struggling with this or they're dealing with this. Has anyone ever had that thought that that message is for someone you know and you wish that they were here to hear it? So everyone kind of has had that experience before. Um, Terrible thinking, okay? And I'll tell you why. Because if you're here and present when God's Word is preached and pronounced, Guess who the message is for? You. Not for the person in your mind where you're thinking, oh, so-and-so needs to hear this, so-and-so needs to hear this. If you're present when this is happening, it is for you. You are here to listen to through God's Spirit and His words that it might bring both instruction, maybe correction, maybe conviction, maybe encouragement, Maybe just simply a whole bunch of education so that you might be able to communicate that to other people you come into contact with. But the moment of the preaching is for you. And I remember early on in my Christian life, I uh, was in this fire and brimstone type of mentality. And every time I heard a great message in the back of my mind, I said, Oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this, because if they heard this, they'd be saved. And I had all these things. I, if so-and-so heard this, oh, So-and-so is having a problem with swearing. I wish they heard this sermon on taking the Lord's name in vain. I know so-and-so who's having a problem with stealing. I wish they were here on this sermon on stealing. And no matter what sermon I heard when I first became a Christian, I kept thinking in the back of my mind, this is a perfect perfect message for so-and-so. And it wasn't until years later that I heard a sermon where the pastor asked that very same question I did at the beginning of the sermon, and I was like, yeah, yeah, this is oh, I know who this sermon's gonna be for. And it was for me, and it was for me. And I know, although we're gonna be talking about this morning in John chapter eight, one through uh, roughly verse uh, 11, it's about adultery. And I already know that that can be a personal subject because half of Americans are affected by that, either personally or in their family, so I know that's affected us. But the message, whether you are affected by adultery or not, it is for you, because Jesus is encountering a sinner and a bunch of hypocrites, and he has a way of convicting the hypocrites and comforting the sinner. And I don't know if you need comfort this morning as a sinner. I don't know as a sinner if you're totally fine and you go, oh, no, I don't need to talk about my sin. Jesus got it taken care of. I don't struggle with it anymore. I'm fine. I'm totally fine. I don't need to hear a sermon on sin and Jesus' comfort. I'd say if you have that mentality, you're exactly the person that needs it. The one who says sin doesn't matter. I don't struggle with sin. I don't have a problem with adultery. I don't have a problem with lust. I don't have a problem of wanting something I don't have then indeed, this message is totally designed for you because Jesus brings comfort to the sinner who knows, I've fallen from God. But to the hypocrite, to the hypocrite, Jesus has harsh, strong words that are precisely driven to make you uncomfortable in your seat. Remember, the entirety of the book of John is all about Jesus the Messiah is the overcoming God King. He is the overcoming God King. There is no one like him in the past, no one like him when he lived, it was just him, and there is no one like him that will live in the future here on earth to interact with us. It is only Jesus. He and he alone is our salvation, and he and he alone brings us words of conviction and comfort at the same time. And it's my prayer, it's my hope, it's my desire that not just this morning when we're dealing with this topic of adultery and Jesus confronting the hypocrites and comforting the sinner, but it's my hope and my prayer and my passion that you would see in this the very real power and presence of Jesus to be your comforter in the midst of no matter what struggle and sin you're facing, whether it's lust, envy, jealousy, and adultery in your heart, or it's something completely different. He is a Savior that can overcome to the utmost anything you are struggling with in your life. I've mentioned before that... uh, in witnessing and talking to people about Jesus, uh, one of the real frequent responses that I get, and and maybe you've heard this too, and I'm sure you've heard this before, Uh, people don't want to go to church, they don't want to enter the church, they don't want to be part of the church, Uh, they think that they're fools, and oftentimes they will recite or say, um, you know, I I don't like this whole church religion thing, especially Christianity, uh, because the church is full of hypocrites. And you've heard me respond to that accusation before by saying, yes, you are absolutely right. The church is full of hypocrites. It's also full of people who are proud. It is full of people who are envious. It is full of people who have a hard time telling the truth. It is a hard time controlling the tongue, a hard time controlling anger. It's full of people having a hard time forgiving one another. The church is full of sinners. It is a hospital for sinners. So yes, indeed, the church is full of hypocrites. And so I'm speaking to myself when I say this, the message that Jesus has to the hypocrite is indeed for us today. Because we all have elements in our lives where we will judge others more harshly than we want ourselves to be judged. And that's the essence of being a hypocrite saying one thing and holding someone to a standard and not applying that same standard to ourselves giving ourselves a break giving ourselves hey you know what i don't have to follow that but you have to follow that so all of that is packed into what we have in john chapter 8 verse 1 through 11 so let's look at the first two verses here john chapter 8 1 and 2 and this is this idea that people are being drawn to the teaching of jesus So right after this, if you remember, Jesus, or right before this in chapter 7, he goes to uh, Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's reluctant in going to begin with because he doesn't want to be just seen as this miracle worker. He ends up coming a little bit secretively, and all of Jerusalem responds to him. Either they think he's a, a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he is indeed Lord. And when confronted with that, people took sides. And so this is the end of the entirety of that section, and it draws into, and it really is, I guess, verse 53 of chapter 7. It's a little parenthetical statement. It says, then they went each to his own house. That means everybody left Jerusalem and started to go back to their homes because the festival was over. Those seven to eight days were done. In verse 1, it says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. He's been in the temple most of the time that he's been there in Jerusalem and the temple was a place both of sacrifice, singing, and worship. And all of a sudden Jesus comes in and starts teaching. Now in the past, the teaching part of worship in Israel was by and large, simply reading. They would stand up in the synagogues, they would stand up in the temple, and from the first five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they would just start reading through that. And then they'd go to some of the Psalms, some of the wisdom literature, some of the history literature, and they would read for half hour to an hour, sing and then read again for a half hour to an hour, then sing and read again for an hour to a half hour, and that was their worship service. Their worship service did not generally contain what we would call today preaching, where we take the word of God and we really dissect it and we try to find its application, its meaning, understanding how it connects to history, how it, underst- how it connects to all of God's revelation of Christ coming, saving us, and calling us, Um, it didn't have that same type of flow that we would have today. So this was very unusual for Israel to have somebody who is sitting in the temple, the main place of sacrifice and singing and worship, and all of a sudden this guy comes in and he's taking God's word and he's explaining it. That would happen in the synagogue sometimes, but not all the time. And so they were amazed that this guy would go to the place where God revealed himself for worship And he taught them. And people came. People wanted to hear the words of Christ. People wanted to hear both that conviction and that comfort at the same time because that just brought a satisfaction and a joy. They wanted to understand how can they relate to God. And this guy has words and a message and a way of communicating that is unlike everyone we've ever heard. They wanted, they were driven by personal need to hear the words of Christ. They did not want to miss it. another time for a bit of honesty, just between me and you. No one else is listening, it's just me and you right now. I'll go first. There have been times as a pastor that I have not wanted to go to church. Did you know that? There have been times on a Sunday morning where I wake up and I don't feel like it. I I got a million other things I could do. The game starting early, who knows what it is? But there have been times where I did not wanna go to church. Has that ever happened to you? I'm guessing it has, because if it's happened to me, I know that it's happened to you because we're human. Yes, we're redeemed, but we're human. So we deal with the same temptations, and we come up with the same list of excuses. Your your list of excuses may be a little bit different than mine. Uh, I can't say, well, you know what? No one will notice if I'm not here today. (laughs) I think some people would notice I'm not here today. But you might be saying, you know what? I know so-and-so will be there, or they're on vacation. I just don't want to show up either. And so we make decisions about going to church, going to a Bible study, even opening the Word of God each day, and we make a long list of excuses of why you don't want to do that, why I don't want to do that, what excuse that we have. When we understand, and this is the secret to getting rid of that entire mentality, if we understand what Jesus has to offer us in His Word, we would never want to skip. We would never want to skip a day and forget his word. We would never want to skip a time and gather together with God's people. We would never want to skip a time of prayer. We would never want to skip a time of worship. We would never, certainly ever want to miss a time where we heard Jesus speaking to us through the Holy Spirit and his word. We would never want to miss that if we truly were honest about who he is and what we need from him. We would be at his feet every single day, begging for more. Let me read more. Let me pray more. Let me sing more. Let me think more about him. We would be consumed to the point that we would probably be no earthly good. We would go, oh, you know what, those monks in the monasteries have it right, they got to read God, read God's Word all day long. They had a whole bunch of other problems, but yes, they did spend a lot of time reading and praying and worshiping God. We would be all consumed, it doesn't matter if that's a new movie, I want to read God's Word. It doesn't matter if that show was on, I want to read God's Word. It doesn't matter if I've been invited there, I want to read God's Word. As believers, we should be so driven to want to be at the feet of Jesus that we would be like these Israelites who have already spent a week away from home, yes, doing God's will, worshiping him in Jerusalem, but when they have the opportunity to go home and get their back, their life back on track, normalcy, they hear Jesus is back preaching in the temple. He's there, and they're there. They want to be at the feet of Jesus. They're driven to that because of his ability and their need, his superiority and their weakness. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. It goes on in the next few verses, because this is where sin gets exposed, starting in verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him. So we have the scenario. This woman is caught in adultery and they bring her to the temple where Jesus is preaching and teaching. And they said to him in verse 4, Teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now when the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, so what do you say? And they said this to him to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, Have you ever been caught with your hand in the cookie jar? Whatever cookie jar that is, I'll tell you, it's embarrassing, isn't it, to get caught? Bold face, you just got caught, whatever it might be. Hopefully it wasn't adultery. But let's say you just got totally caught. It is unbelievably embarrassing, painful, shameful. Now, this woman was in that situation. And not just simply caught by someone, but caught by the entirety of Jerusalem at the time who are gathered together to hear Jesus teach. I cannot imagine how unbelievably humiliating that is. Every eye on you, that's the one who committed adultery. And the scribes and the Pharisees were right. The law of Moses did say in multiple places that a man and a woman who is caught in an adulterous relationship should be stoned. Now, that is an extremely important part of the story. The man and the woman who is caught in a position of adultery, which means they're not husband and wife, are to be stoned. And in this text, the Pharisees do real good getting the woman. But if she was caught in the act of adultery, as far as I know, you need someone else, right? There needs to be two people for that adultery to take place. So, my question is, and I think Jesus' question, and obviously everybody else that's there except the scribes and Pharisees are all asking the same question You caught her in the act of adultery, where's the guy? Where's the guy? Where's the one who was committing adultery with her? Where's her husband and where's the other guy? Or maybe she wasn't married, where's the other guy? No mention of him. And we're told this is all a setup. How's Jesus going to deal with this? Are they going, is he going to be this, like, liberal and just let everybody off? Or is he going to, like, okay, here's, here's the solid truth, this is what it is. He doesn't even address the fact that they don't bring both guilty parties. And in fact, you needed multiple witnesses to prove that this couple was in the act of adultery in order for this to take place. Not just one person catching them, it had to be multiple people that caught them in that act. You had to have witnesses, not just one, but multiple witnesses to a capital offense. But Jesus didn't answer at the time. He simply wrote something in the ground in the dust. And the number of commentaries that have concluded this is what Jesus wrote is enormous. Almost every commentary you read will tell you this is what Jesus wrote. And I would love to tell you what he wrote in the ground. I'd love to tell you it was the names of the Pharisees and their concubines or the women that they slept with or other religious leaders and the women they slept with. I have no idea. Maybe it was a list of the men that this lady slept with. I have no idea what he wrote on the ground, but whatever he wrote on the ground, we have to know it was vitally important, but it wasn't necessary for us to know about. We don't need to speculate. We don't need to wonder. We don't need to guess. We don't need to take sides. All we have to know is Jesus wrote Something clearly and important for the people that were there. It's not important for us to know the details. What's important to know is that Jesus had clarity of the situation. Maybe he wrote out the law that said both parties have to be brought. Where are they? Where's the guilty man? Not present, not accounted for, not anywhere present. But it does bring up the question about adultery in general. And this is where I said at the very beginning that no matter what sermon God brings you to and you get to hear, it applies to us. And it'd be my hope that every one of you say, Tim, I understand, but we're talking about adultery, and that's the one sin I've not dealt with. That's the one sin that I've never had a problem with. That's the one sin I've never been accused of. I've been faithful to my spouse. I was faithful in my my early life before marriage and didn't have sex. I've not committed adultery at all. Hold that thought for a moment. In Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27 uh, through verse 30, Jesus explains to us what adultery really is all about. He says, starting in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. Yeah, it's one of the Ten Commandments, God's top ten. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than for you to lose your whole body thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. The important part of that is what Jesus says about adultery. Adultery is not just sleeping with someone that is not your spouse. It is the heart's intent of lusting after someone, having that, wow, wonder what they're like, wow, they're gorgeous, wow, that's neat, wow, I wonder, those thoughts in your heart that your mind entertains and you dwell upon and you think about, and it's not your spouse, it is adultery. You see, the law that God gave us was not just a list of do's and don'ts physically. It all went to the heart. It all pointed to the fact that even though I may not take a gun and shoot someone and murder them, yet when I am angry with them and I hate them, it's the same as murder. It doesn't matter if I haven't robbed a bank. If I've taken five extra minutes of break time from my employer I've stolen. I'm a thief. It doesn't matter if you haven't raised your hand and lied on the witness stand to get someone off for murder. The moment you tell a little white lie you're a liar. The moment You look upon someone who is not your spouse with any type of desire. You've committed adultery. By conclusion, not to the message, but to this point. We still have way much more time. But by conclusion, I think it's safe to say that the church is not only full of hypocrites It's also full of murderers. It's also full of liars. It's also full of thieves. And dare I say, it is also full of adulterers. This is where you could say amen. Amen. But I know that that's hard because you're just admitting and hearing that you're not perfect. That's what the Pharisees just felt. The Pharisees just got pointed on. They just got exposed. They just got revealed that they're not perfect. How do you think they felt? Whoa, that took a totally different turn than the way they were expecting. They were probably expecting Jesus to totally fail or maybe just surprise them by saying, let's get the stones and throw. But Jesus exposes sin. And it doesn't always feel comfortable when he exposes sin. Sometimes it really, really hurts. But sin has been exposed. The woman caught in adultery, her sin was on full display for all of Jerusalem to see. Verse 7 and 8, Jesus responds. He's already written something in the sand, whatever that might be, on the ground. Then he says in verse 7, and as they continued to ask him. So these Pharisees, these scribes, all these religious leaders were persistent. Jesus, what are you going to do? 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 Have you ever had a kid that came up to you, one of your kids? I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do. And it was a non-ending. Maybe you've done it. Maybe this non-ending. I want. I want. I want. I want. I want. I want. Oh, I see people pointing to each other. So I, yeah, it's happened. That constant pestering. And what generally happens when you get that constant pe- pestering? You give in. Have you ever just given in? Because you're like, I, I just can't handle this anymore. Yes, we'll stop. Yes, we'll stop. Yes, we'll stop. I know you're hungry. I know you're hungry. I know you're hungry. Never-ending pestering. Sometimes you just give in. So they continued to ask him. And what were they asking him? What are you going to do with this woman who committed adultery? What are you going to do with this woman who committed adultery? What are you going to do with this woman who committed adultery? What are you going to do with this woman who committed adultery? You going to stone her? 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 What are you going to do? What are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do? You know the law. You know the law. You know the law. What are you going to do? Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. It doesn't tell us in Scripture, but in this case, but I, I, I got to imagine that the patience Jesus has is extraordinary. Because I probably at the very first second would have just blown up at the scribes and Pharisees' pretend antics, and I would have just hammered them with the law saying, yeah, but in Leviticus and Deuteronomy it tells us that you have to bring both parties. Where's the guy? 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 guy? How do you like that to the Pharisees? So Jesus stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. that's the right way to handle it. Jesus always knows the right way to handle it. Don't don't come to Tim figuring out, hey, what's the right way to handle this, Tim? I'm never gonna be handling it the way Jesus does. It is not just masterful with his logic and his reasoning, but it is masterful with the heart of the matter. The heart is what Jesus is a master over because he looks at those scribes and Pharisees again, write something on the ground. Who knows what it is? No one knows for sure, so we don't need to speculate because we're not supposed to know, otherwise it'd be recorded for us. But in that dialogue of him writing on the ground and him saying, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. I know that there were people in that crowd, scribes and Pharisees, that probably had a rock in their pocket ready for it. And I imagine some of them were tempted to kind of reach back, oh, oh, maybe I shouldn't. No one else is. I better not. I'm not without sin. That makes all of us a level playing field. You see, the church is full of people with sin, And so the one who is struggling with sin is welcome here because we are all struggling with it. The difference is the church has freedom from that struggle, forgiveness from that struggle, redemption from that struggle, a way out of that struggle. While we still face that struggle, we have a Redeemer who has conquered it on our behalf, yet we still live. In a sinful, fallen world, and still struggle with sin, and we still sin ourselves, sometimes breaking the top ten. But we still struggle with sin, but we know how to get right with God. That's the difference. While we are all sinners, we know how to get right with God, and that's only through Christ. But his beautiful question He who was without sin casts the first stone throw it. If you have no sin, keep condemning and keep throwing stones at this person. Go for it. Jesus really picks on the Pharisees' hypocrisy because he knows. And because the lady wasn't stoned, we also know they knew they're with sin. They struggle with sin. And later on in Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, he has a dialogue with the scribes and Pharisees, which is recorded in Matthew 23. Great chapter to read, uh, but later on in chapter 23, he says in verse 27 and 28 what he really thinks of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, two-faced! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And he goes on and on in that chapter to pinpoint their sin, to pinpoint their pride and arrogance, to show them how they judge unfairly holding themselves to a different standard, and judging others. Now, that's probably one thing that the church never struggles with, right? Judging others. We we probably, no, Tim, we can talk about adultery, but don't start talking about me judging other people because I got a lot of opinions that I think are right, and I'm free to throw those on other people anytime I want. How things are done and how they're doing it. I am masterful at giving those type of suggestions. I would be very hesitant. In fact, I would advise completely against it when it comes to spiritual matters of the heart, to confront people with your ideas and your way of doing things. Because if they are not biblical, scriptural principles that you can communicate with clarity and conviction of the Holy Spirit, then you are very, very close to falling into this trap of being judgmental towards someone based upon your traditional opinions. That is scary. But Jesus calls them on that hypocrisy. Time and time again throughout Scripture, they have this apparent outward sense of holiness and righteousness and cleanliness and purity and they got it all together and they know everything and they're, they're professionals at living the outward life of perfection and they are great at telling others how to live their lives even though they know in their own heart that those stones should be thrown at them and when Jesus points that out to them there's conviction conviction And we know that there is conviction because this hypocrisy is exposed in verse 9 through verse 11. But when they heard it, this is back in John chapter 8, but when they heard it, when they heard Jesus say, he is without sin, let him cast the first stone, and then he started writing again in the ground, when they heard that, they went away. One by one, beginning with the older ones, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus confronted them head on with their hypocrisy, their arrogance, their self-righteousness, their condemnation, their judgmental spirit of another. And when Jesus pressed them, I know that the conviction overwhelmed them. They left. And it's interesting that John records for us the older ones left first. What does it mean, the older ones? He's talking about those scribes and Pharisees that were the leadership, the ones who had taught the others, the ones with the most power and prestige in the community. They saw the writing on the wall and realized, I'm out of here. I, this totally backfired. We're out of here. And one by one, everybody else left, so it was just Jesus and the woman no longer a spectacle, no longer everyone staring at the situation. And then Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? No one has condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, Jesus does not excuse adultery or allow for it. He confronts it. Where's your accusers? There are none, okay. Then I'm not here to condemn you either. But as you go forward from this day, don't sin anymore. See, Jesus didn't even have to confront her about her sin. All he had to do was face her with the fact you have no accusers, but don't go do it again. Don't sin against God. That's mercy. That's tenderness. Those words are extremely good words of comfort, but also this sense of conviction because he's not letting her off the hook. He's calling her to repentance. He's calling her to holy living after this moment. It's like I got my hand caught in the cookie jar. I'm not going to do that again. I'm staying away from it. I'm not going to entertain it again. I'm gonna change. That's what he was calling her to repentance and change. And it's beautiful how it matches so beautifully and perfectly with Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 24. And I know this isn't even a complete verse, but there's the beautiful words that Paul recites for us. It says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in that same boat. Where we struggle where we're not perfect where we could be called hypocrites liars thieves and murderers we're all in that same boat we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of god and then verse 24 pounds us with encouragement and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in christ jesus see we have redemption through christ jesus We still have sinned. We still have fallen short of the glory of God. We still have murdered. We still have stolen. We still have lied. We still have committed adultery. We still have rebelled against our parents. We still have taken his name in vain. But we are justified and redeemed by Jesus Christ. We have seen the opportunity to repent and we have taken that repentance if we are one of his children. And that woman who was humiliated in the middle of the city, had that humiliation, that fear of being stoned, put to rest. And she was able to walk away from that encounter with Jesus with a sense of forgiveness in her heart, a sense of compassion and mercy from Christ himself, that she might live another day To fight against the struggle of sin. She did not have to obey sin anymore. Jesus encountered her and challenged her and moved her to a place of repentance. Quietly, privately, personally, and powerfully. Her name is not mentioned at all in that chapter not mentioned anywhere in Scripture, and no one even mentions the name in all of church history. I wonder, I wonder if we're going to see her one day. I wonder if we're going to see her in hope, in heaven, in glory. I wonder if we're going to have an opportunity to stand next to her and sing praises to God's redemptive history. Praises to Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. Because as a sinner, caught in sin, confronted by Christ and comforted by Christ, she's more than welcome to be part of this church. She is more than welcome to be part of the glories of heaven and all the multitude that sing his praise. church is a place for sinners. Not that we condone the sin. It's confronted, but it's also comforted by the grace of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray as the band comes up and leads us in our last song. Father, we're thankful that you are a God of mercy, that you are a God of tenderness, that you are a God who confronts us and a God who comforts us through Christ. May we be comforted in whatever sin we're struggling with, Father. Forgive us, cleanse us from this unrighteousness, and make us whole before your throne. And may you receive the words of this worship with a heart that acknowledges we are sinners saved by grace. And all of God's people said, amen.